morning, friends. It's good to have you here this morning, and welcome to those of you who are listening on the, through the podcast. Um, we can always tell that it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the first week of Advent uh, because so many friends are, are traveling and, and away, uh, and uh, also um, it, it started to snow uh, this, this morning. Actually, in the early hours of the morning, I was up at five for some reason, and so I just went and looked out the window, and there was actually a nice dusting on the, on the cars da- down below. So um, that, that's, I think, is a nice timing as we begin, uh, begin the Advent season and the holidays kick off. So our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. Beginning at verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Roboam, Roboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, This is how the New Testament begins. And in fact, this is how the entire Advent story, Christmas story begins. It begins with this list of names. Have you ever felt that this was a rather dull and boring way to begin a story like this? I mean, he's literally emulating those really boring bits of the Old Testament where it says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. It's literally a list of names. But if you're going to tell the story of God becoming a human being, the creator coming to creation in a new and intimate way, the incarnation, if you're going to that story, surely there's a more exciting and more interesting way of beginning that, that story. And actually, we know that there is, because I always love the way that the Apostle John begins his gospel, his advent, his Christmas story, and it begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Much more dramatic. You can almost hear the... Uh, the soundtrack to that one, in the beginning was the word. Uh, And uh, he's making all these huge metaphysical claims, and and irrespective of whether you believe in any of those metaphysical claims or not, that's that's quite uh, beside the point. The point is that John starts with style and panache, but Matthew, Matthew, I can be boring at Christmas time too, uh, he begins with this list of names. And I've always thought, I could do better than that. Uh, Surely, this is a very dull and drab way to begin this kind of story. But then again, if you look a little bit more closely at this list, then we we must. We discover it's a slightly more interesting list than it first appears on the surface. I, I suppose if we wanted an analogy, we could liken this list to the sort of list, you know how most governments keep a running list of enemies of the state, right? And, and people they want to keep an eye on, tap their phones, political dissidents, that sort of thing. Well, this is that sort of list. Only, I suppose these people were all dead by the time this list was compiled, so not quite. How dangerous could any of these dead people be? 
Um, individually, maybe not, but taken as a composite, as a, as a list of names, this list represents a very dangerous idea. It's a very dangerous, subversive idea that threatens the centers of power and authority in Israel's society. What he wants to do with this list, Matthew is trying to pull out the carpet from under those who either have an enormous amount of power in their culture and are clinging to power for dear life, or maybe you didn't have much power, but you were clamoring for power just as fiercely. And, and he is pulling out the carpet from those who are clinging to power and those who are clamoring for power as well. So how does this list function? Well, in order to understand how this list functions, we have to, of course, first of all, understand how their society functioned. And, and there's a couple of ways that you would establish yourself, your, your power, your authority in Israel society. And, and, and so there's two ways. We'll, we'll look at both of them. We'll, we'll start with the first one, which is you establish a link with the temple, right? You establish a link with the temple. You either have to build the temple or you rebuild the temple because there are two different iterations. You rebuild the temple, you refurbish the temple, you run the temple, but you have to establish that kind of link with the temple. Because as we've said before, the temple was not just, we, we think temple, religious life, but it's not just religious life. For Israel, it was a center of political life, economic life, their social life, and authority resided in the temple and authority flowed out from the temple. And, and so it was rather like getting yourself a seat in the Senate or, or getting yourself installed into the White House. That's where authority and power resided in their nation. And so this is why you have King Herod. King Herod needs no introduction, right? He, he's the villain of the Christmas, the Advent Nativity story, right? We all know him, King Herod. Uh, he had this massive temple refurbishment project. And apparently, once it was finished, it was beautiful. It was a stunning temple complex. But he didn't do that refurbishment for the love of art and architecture. He did it because this is his way of saying, I am God's man. Authority and power reside with me. Authority and power flow out of me to you, to the rest of the nation over which I rule. Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sort of aristocratic group of families, very wealthy people in their society. And they were given control over the temple because they cooperated with Herod. So Herod ran the temple, sorry, Herod, Herod built, refurbished the temple. The Sadducees ran the temple. And then there were the Pharisees because they had a two-party system. If any of this sounds familiar, they had a two-party system. And in this two-party system, the Pharisees, well, they didn't really have much real-world power to speak of precisely because they couldn't establish this kind of connection and relationship to the temple. So everybody, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herod, and others, were all trying to hold on to power, clamor for power, and the way they did it was by connecting with the temple in some way, shape, or form. But Matthew, right here in this passage that I read for us just now, has a sort of rather, he steps back and looks at it rather, he has an ironic look at this whole scene before him of everyone trying to connect with the temple. He sees there's a deep irony. And we'll only appreciate his ironic look at this if we go back to the person who wanted to build the temple, the very first iteration of the temple. And that first king who wanted to build the first temple was, of course, King David. And King David says, I want to build a temple. And then uh, God responds to this desire 
You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I've not dwelt in the house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. To which of the leaders of Israel did I ever say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever, wherever you have gone. So God reminds David of his past, and he says, look, you, you were a nobody from nowhere, shepherding sheep in the backwaters of some backwater town, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie. You know those lyrics from the Christmas carol, right? That's the same Bethlehem where Jesus is born centuries earlier. That is where King David had been shedding sheep outside of Bethlehem. And nobody from nowhere, the youngest son in his family, so no status, right? And God is one who lifts him up and makes him king of Israel. So God reminds David of his past. Um, but then he starts to speak about David's future. And this is what he says. I declare to you, the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my forever his throne will be established forever god reminds him that he's the one who established him in the first place and god is the one who will establish any future david will have so god says look you're not going to build me a house at that point he's talking about a temple but he says i will build you a house at that point he's talking about people and so here's the irony which you can now see Everyone in Israel society, power and authority lies with the temple. We've got to establish ourselves in connection with the temple. We want Davidic authority. We want Davidic messianic authority. We've got to establish ourselves with this temple. Uh, but all the while, David himself never built the temple. He never refurbished the temple. He had nothing to do with the temple. He never laid a stone. I think this is something really important for us to understand, and, and this can actually, the insight here can be foundational for all, every single one of our relationships. Um, God, what, what, what is at the heart of this, is that God is the origin and source of all power and authority, and all power and authority he's, flow from him. And therefore, power is never something to be grasped and grabbed and taken. It's never something that I'm meant to put myself up for or put myself forward for. Rather, it is a gift. It is given. It is bestowed. It has to be, anything else would be metaphysical nonsense. If God is the origin and source of all power and authority, then power can never be something that we grasp and grab and take. It is always a gift. It is given. It is bestowed. It has to be that way. It is always that way, whether we recognize that or not. And when we recognize this, things go badly wrong. And it can be on a huge scale where you have nations going to war against each other, which we've talked quite a bit about in the Colossians series we just finished, we just wrapped up. Or it could be on a very personal level between a husband and wife in marriage. Or it could be in our relationships together as a church as well. Uh, some of you have been listening to the podcast, which has been... Uh, 
documenting and chronicling the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, it, it's this massive church up, well, was a massive church up in Seattle. Uh, they had tens of the loads of satellite uh, congregations where they were beaming the pastor in uh, to those congregations. They had tens of thousands in attendance. In 2011, uh, I finally listened to it, Eric. <laughs> in 2011, they had the, uh, the most successful, by all the metrics they were using, the most successful year where they had the largest growth and fastest growth they'd ever had. But two years later, that church was gone, done, dusted. No one would have anticipated that. No one would have seen that coming. And what happened was people started to look at the description of leaders in the New Testament. And they saw that, that the description of leaders and authority and power in the New Testament is about this sort of people who would serve other people, who would love other people, people who were generous, people who were hospitable, people who were gracious and kind, people who were gentle, people who were compassionate, this is where authority and power, these are the sort of leaders. And they were looking at this description in their, in their Bibles, in their New Testament, in places like Timothy and other places. And, and they'd say, well, the, none of the leaders we have, and a church that size, with tens of thousands, they, they had so many leaders. But they would look at this and go, well, none of our leaders fit this description. Why is that? What is going on here? And if you want to understand what happened to, to this successful church, right? It's not because there was some big sex scandal, which happens, right? That wasn't it. It wasn't because there was big, some big financial scandal and they'd been helping themselves to the coffers. That, that, that wasn't it. It wasn't sex and money. It was power. It was this relationship to power. It was, it was this understanding of, of how power works. And so what Matthew is doing here with this list He's essentially, what he's doing, if, if you want to imagine this, to come back to Matthew, is he's placing explosives at the foot of the temple, at the foundation of the temple. Or whatever it is you think, wherever it is you think that power and authority emanate from, whatever that idol is, and he, he's putting the explosives there, and he's about to push the plunger. That's what Matthew is doing with this list. By the time he's done with this list, he intends to leave nowhere for anyone or any of these power mongers to stand. Like I said, he's pulling out from underneath those who are either clinging to power for dear life or maybe they don't have much power but they're clamoring for it and they're grasping and grabbing at it. Okay, so we said there's two ways to establish your power and authority in the nation of Israel. First one is the temple. The second one is through lineage. It's through genealogy, through blood, through bloodlines, through birth. If you can prove that you were well-born and high-born and best-born, then you also had some sort of societal authority and power in that society. Um, let me give you an illustration of, of how this, this works. I used this illustration, about, I think, about four years ago, so I think this works. So this is my grandfather, uh, Chung Wan Sang, or Peter Chung was his, his Western name, and uh, he has these medals here, and, and he has these medals because they were his father's. So my great-grandfather was given these medals by, uh, by the Korean government, and they get passed on to him as the eldest son, then to my dad as the eldest son, and then, then to me as the eldest son. And uh, the, the, he was given these medals 
because my, my great-grandfather and a few others, uh, that they, they wanted to see a sort of pan-Asian cooperation, uh, a little bit like a European Union before there was a European Union. And, and they felt while the Japanese emperor was a good man, they felt that the, the Japanese prince and, and prime minister who was overseeing the, the occupation of Korea, and it was a brutal occupation, tens of thousands of, of Koreans were, were executed and, and imprisoned and that sort of thing, very brutal Japanese occupation of Korea. And so he and four other guys, they got together, these five guys named Blood Brothers, and they made a pact, and they made a plan, and they carried out the assassination of this uh, Japanese prime minister. And, and so what happened was they, they caught Unjungun, who was the guy who actually pulled the trigger. They caught the others as well, but they managed to escape executed the guy who pulled the trigger. The others escaped and went to China and formed the provisional Korean government in China. And, and so he, he gets this medal. And this medal, as I said, gets passed on from older son to older son to older son. And, and I'm the last generation that can use it. And, and one of the things I can do with this medal is if someone was on death row in Korea, I could exchange this medal for their life. So if you ever find yourself in Korea and on death row, Give me a call and we'll see what we can do. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, my, my, um, my aunts can't use this medal because, well, my dad's got an older, an older sister, but she can't use this medal. Someone else who can't use this medal is my younger brother. I like to remind him of this frequently. Uh, we're never going to use this medal. But, but, <laughs> but, but I like to remind him this because this has to go from older son to older son oldest son. That's the strict parameters. That's how this sort of genealogy thing works. That's, that's how it's meant to operate. Now let's return to this list. What kind of list is this? Well, this is a very strange list. For a start, it includes women. Not, not just one woman or two women, but four women. If you look more closely, you discover that two of the women were prostitutes. One of them was a prostitute, uh, who, who, someone who prostituted herself to her father-in-law. Uh, the second woman was a prostitute by profession. If you look more closely, you'll find that some of them are, are Moabites. So now you're now talking about non-Jewish, non-Jewish non blood, Gentile, foreign blood, right? And then there are the second sons, so you've got women, prostitutes, foreigners, second sons, and even more absurd, probably most absurd of all, you had the youngest sons, the nobodies from nowhere. What is Matthew doing with this list? This is a total break with convention. Well, once again, Matthew is establishing the authority of Jesus Christ but he's doing it unconventionally. And, and he is, at the same time, pulling out the carpet from those clinging to power and clamoring for power. Firstborn, rightborn, bestborn. Matthew says, nah, none of those things. Don't look for that here. And in case we miss the point, the whole conversation of genealogy, the whole, the whole convention, rather, of genealogy, the whole convention is shaken to the core. Because at the end of this list, as soon as we get to the end of this list, he says, oh, and there's no bloodline here. What do you mean? That's the whole point of a genealogy. No, there's, there's no bloodline connecting us all the way to Jesus. Because Jesus is the son, this is a, uh, been tracing the, the, the genealogy of Joseph, and, and Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary this is an inexplicable event which we can barely find language for. But what Matthew is doing with this is he's saying in the very birth of Jesus, we see an authority 
that transcends temple, blood, and birth. We see an authority and power that transcends all the usual ways that you and I would go about establishing authority and power in our own society. One of the things about living in a city like New York is that the city like this is, is so impressive and so powerful, so influential, and it can start to shape our thinking and shape our hearts and, and the direction of our lives. And we do have our own temples. You know, we think if, if, if I can just connect to this temple, to this fashion house, to this publishing house, to this law firm, to this financial institution, to this university, you can fill in the blank. If I can just get a foot in the door, and then if I can, after establishing myself, getting a foot in the door of the temple, if I can sort of climb the ranks of this temple, if I can get to the top or near the top, because we know that power always comes from top down. It comes from the top bottom. But Matthew's Advent story begins by saying, no, it's actually the opposite. And as Matthew's gospel unfolds, We'll meet the Jesus who says power and authority do not flow from top down, but from bottom up. And as Matthew's gospel unfolds, we will meet the Jesus who says, whoever wants to be first must be last. And whoever wants to be great amongst you must be servant of all. Perhaps this reconfiguration of power in our hearts and minds, this new understanding of power, perhaps this is the first gift of the Christmas story, right here in this list. And I pray that we can receive this gift again this Christmas. As we come to take communion, I want to take a moment to think about how the story the world tells us about power and authority has seeped into our own hearts. Another friend listening to the podcast uh, that I mentioned earlier the other day said, you know, I, I just wonder Sometimes this, this podcast has made me wonder, how am I contributing to this problem? How am I contributing to this issue in the church itself? So I want us to think about how the story the world tells about power and authority has seeped into our hearts. Think about how profoundly influenced we are by that story, the different ways we've bought into it. And I want us to ask ourselves, what would it look like in, in your life in your career, in your relationships, if you were to allow this Advent season, which begins with this reconfiguration of power and authority, that's the whole point of this list of names, a reconfiguration of power and authority. What if you were to allow the Advent story, allow Jesus to reconfigure your understanding and reconfigure your relationship to power and authority in your heart? In a moment, we're going to take communion um, but first of all, I, I just want us to close our eyes and just take a moment to meditate on those questions again. I can't think of a meal that, that interrupts power and authority in, in the way that communion does. What would it look like in your life, in your career, in your relationships, if you were to allow this Advent season, which begins with this reconfiguration of power and authority, what if you were to allow this Advent story to reconfigure your own understanding and reconfigure your relationship to power and authority in your own heart. Take a moment to think of those places where it's 
some other story has gripped us and seeped in. What would it look like to undo and overturn that story? Mm -hmm.